Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Adventure Science Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Donato, and today I am very pleased to introduce uh, Hugh James. Hugh is uh, coming to us live from a cruise ship, which is uh, something he's often doing traveling, uh, hailing from the UK. Uh, he's an accomplished scientist. And uh, his scientific focus was in astronomy and space science. He's a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. He's a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. But he also likes to play outside. And he likes to take his scientific learnings to a wider audience, which is absolutely amazing. So Hugh's got a background in alpinism, and I'll definitely be picking his brain on that today. Um, I'll let him tell us about uh, his Blue Group and Antares, which are programs that uh, he directs and uh, basically spreads scientific education uh, across uh, the world, over six continents, or six continents visited so far. So, without any further ado, Hugh, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Simon. Yeah. So, what's your longitude and latitude right now? Where are you floating? Just off of Fort Lauderdale, actually. Uh, So, we're at the moment doing uh, laps in and out of the the Bahamas and the Caribbean, which sounds awesome. Um, I do enjoy a mountain, and there's not many of those in either Florida or the Bahamas. <laughs> that is true. Um, you know, with the amount of time I've been spending in Florida lately, uh, if they were here, I would have found them. I've uh, searched high and low, <laughs> and I found... I, I had a look the other day. The average height of uh, all of Florida is six feet, the highest point, 340 feet. Yeah, the air is not very thin up there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, where I am in the Jupiter area right now, um, we've got something called Hobe Mountain, just north, uh, about five minutes north in Jonathan Dickinson State Park. And I think it's in the order of 60 to 70 feet uh, ASL. And then uh, a little further south, there is an old um, garbage pile that has since been turned into a public park and it's got a number of trails crisscrossing it. So, you know, training for the mountain races and things like that. Well, I've got two places to go. More difficult. And, uh, However, in, interestingly, there is no uh, agreed upon definition of what a mountain is. Um, I was doing a, an educational show a few years ago and had to, had to look it up because we had a question from a YouTube audience. And I was looking at what is a hill? What is a mountain? It used to be that, um, it used to be a height definition, but they've since got rid of that. And there is no agreed upon definition of what a mountain is. Um, it's generally agreed that a hill is more rounded and has grass on it, and a mountain is more rugged and has rocks. But there's no height definition anymore. So, so, so if you want to call it a mountain, mate, you call it a mountain. <laughs> I don't want to call it a mountain. I think it's right. uh, disrespectful to the real mountains out there, and I don't want them to gang up on me. I need them on my side for the days where I really throw down. Yeah, no, I don't want them thinking I'm a poser already, more than I already am. Uh, all right, so tell me, uh, you know, you're, you're a youngster. Uh, you've got a big future ahead of you. Mom and dad and your teachers say, what do you want to do with your life? You want to... Do you want to get into trades? Do you want to stick uh, stick it out in school? Uh, do you like playing indoors? Do you like playing outdoors? Are you a video gamer? You know how how did you end up on your current path? It's not the uh, the path that most people take. That's a, a really good uh, question and a really good sum, a summation of my career to this point at the start as well. Um, and I don't have a like. I often think that people. I have this, oh, this was my shining light moment. I saw this thing or I did this thing and uh, I suddenly, I knew where I was going with my life. And what I find more and more is that there's a ridiculously low number of people that have that uh, light bulb moment where they go, I know what I'm going to do in my life. And I never really did. Um, and I, I didn't really understand where my career path came from. I started thinking about it more when I got more and more of these interviews done and people would ask me this question. And I realized that when I was like uh, 10, 11 years old, QVC was a big thing back then, the, the shopping channel. And um, I used to watch it a lot for for those fountain pens that you could stab through cans and throw at dartboards and the likes. Those were cool uh, from <laughs> an engineering point of view. But I asked Violet, my mother for... I like it. Yeah. <laughs> but the shopping channel had, had this telescope on it. It was just an 11-inch... Um, reflector telescope off of 
uh, off of the, the, the shopping channel. And I wanted it for Christmas. It was uh, $130 or so. And I asked my parents if I could have it, and they bought it for me for Christmas time. And uh, I fell in love with astronomy and, and the stars. But I used to run Dinosaur Club when I was in primary school in the bushes behind the school, outside of school hours. I was to be a paleontologist and I always used to get annoyed when people would say oh you want to be an archaeologist and I was like no I want to be a paleontologist you, so, want, you want to know something funny that, first of all it sounds like an it. unsanctioned club how many members did you have and did you charge an uh, entry fee uh, well, I had about uh, four members four or five members they were thereabouts these are my friends from, from primary school uh, no entry fee but they had to do the homework that I would set them at the end of the club um, normally that was drawing your favourite oh. dinosaur or something similar um, but yeah, I used, to, I used to like run loads of clubs outside of school, and it was usually I'd run trash club. Like I'd walk around the streets by myself and pick up trash and and those kind of things. I grew up in the the valleys in in South Wales, an old mining town. Um, okay. So there wasn't it, like there's relatively few and far between things that you can do in in that kind of area. So it was a lot of kind of keeping myself busy. But I played bunch of sports as well i played badminton and squash and basketball and rugby and soccer and a bunch of others so i i, I kind of sum up my my career path till now and the one i'm currently on as a jack of all trades and master of none which i think people used to see as a, a, a derogatory term but i think more and more now people are seeing that as a as a strength and i certainly do see it as a strength to be able to do lots of things and and uh, use your skills across lots of different disciplines so um, I never had that, that light bulb moment, but I was given all the opportunities that I needed to find the things that I love doing, which is the stuff that I do now. Well, that's cool. Well, we're going to have to get into that, but you know, when you, you made me laugh, uh, when you're saying you frequently find yourself explaining to people what the difference between archeology span and paleontology is. I literally did that last week via email, uh, <laughs> on a change.org email that, uh, Chanel had sent me. And uh, it was about bear's ears. It obviously related to the project that we had just completed, which was uh, Conservation and Focus. And, and um, you know, it was a fairly prominent organization who had a line that said something about blah, blah, blah. Bear's ears has a lot of uh, important archaeological sites and they have Tyrannosaurus Rex, too. And <laughs> just the way it was written, it was so misleading and it, it made me think that the person who wrote it didn't know the difference between archaeology and paleontology. I, I wrote a letter to the organization with my suggested revisions uh, as to how it should read uh, for future and that they uh, um, maybe should do their research a, a little more thoroughly before sending out uh, surveys that they're hoping to get hundreds of thousands of signatures on to actually change uh, national policy when any analyst with half a brain would rip them apart and kind of view them as a joke if uh, they don't have that stuff lined up. So sometimes uh, it's not a exactly big deal. Right. And I get, Other times it is. Well, I mean, that's the thing. And I get astronomy and astrology a lot because um, I, <laughs> I did geology for, yes. for a couple of years. I, I, I majored in astronomy and space science. Yeah, so um, obviously astronomy is uh, looking at the stars, cosmology and, and the likes. Um, and astrophysics all within the same kind of bunch of physical sciences uh, astrology is the, the spiritual concept of uh, planets making your day better or, or worse um, and it has no truth to it whatsoever but the <laughs> i completely agree that it seems yeah it seems like a small these small errors but I, i've over the years i've kind of developed um uh, a passion for calling people on it because what i see them as gateway errors like these little errors that people with relatively low scientific literacy and my whole job now is to increase scientific literacy worldwide like all i'm trying to do is kind of get people to kind of think about science and um the scientific theory in a, in a more deep way and the gateway errors that i see time and time again are little things like getting astrology and astronomy wrong because then you would be you could think that um, astronomy, which is a factual physical science that uses rigorous scientific method and observations and experimentation, is the same as astrology, which is a completely is complete pseudoscience that has no basis in fact at all. So 
it seems like a, a really small thing for me to go, well, actually, it's astronomy, not astrology. This is the stuff that we do in it. You know, it's not it's a little bit different for paleontology and archaeology, which are very, you know, they both are scientific and you both you use both um, uh, in science. However, like that's a slippery slope. Then if you don't pick people up on, you know, people going, ah, oh, well, I don't really believe that climate change happens or I, I think that the earth is flat and, and isn't round and I, I believe that vaccinations aren't real uh, or they, they do cause autism and these gateway errors then just cascade down to bigger and bigger and bigger things and I think for people to, to for people like us to pick others up on it we have to do it because otherwise we get to you know the flat earth society is building in its um, in its numbers in its quantity um, and you might think, well, what does it matter if, if people think that the Earth is flat and isn't an oblate spheroid? It isn't round. You know, what does it matter? And But I think it does open that when you don't, when people don't see the world as um, factual, when they, you know, we're in this post-truth era, it can lead to some things that are very, very destructive for themselves, but also for society. Sorry, I got quite deep on that <laughs> quite quick. Oh no, it's uh, it's true. I mean, especially when uh, those mistakes are carried by people who are, you know, moving through the political system, start to wield some power, and uh, can really start to affect policy more than yeah. the thousands of, of scientists who, you know, make their living conducting science day in day out at institutions or corporations or wherever, but essentially abide by the scientific method. And I uh, know you're right. Um, when you don't have, uh, you know, a, a background of studies, uh, or, or you, don't, you don't have the data to back claims, uh, I just I've never understood how people can continue to make those claims in the absence of data and testing and testing again and yeah. again and again to disprove, which is you know essentially the scientific method. So and but, the, hey, the um, debate at the moment with with open access. Sorry, just to. To just sure. jump in on one thing, the open access debate at the moment, whether we should make uh, all scientific papers open access to the public. And I've seen loads of um, people disagreeing that we, sh we shouldn't bother because people can't read scientific papers. They can, you know, the general public don't have the, the tools in the toolbox to read through a scientific paper, come to their own conclusions that are factual and correct, uh, and then disseminate that to a wider audience. But my disagreement was wasn't that it wasn't. I, I think we should have open access. Not I believe that everyone can decipher a scientific paper. I believe that for for people like us who are taking the the wider message out there, we can then go back to these papers and say, well, if you if you really do want to know where we got our facts from on these things, a la climate change, deforestation, uh, and the likes, this mm. is the source that we got it from, and you can read it if you want. You can see where my um, my sourcing came from and my data and my research. It's all open access. And I think that we should definitely have that. I think the transparency in the scientific realm can only be a good thing. Oh, I 100% agree with you. I don't see any purpose in keeping it to the small group of people who can understand that particular form of jargon. And, you know, it's just now that everything is on the Internet, there's no reason to keep um proper scientific data and information uh, out of people's hands because it, the, the vacuum will be filled and you see it filled with everything from Twitter feeds to, I don't know, just uh, incorrect articles that, that mm. can't cite because they can't access these things. And, you know, if it was exactly. available, you could shut down a lot of these arguments uh, uh, a lot sooner and before they become maybe systemic. But hey, um, let's get back to the uh, scientific education in a little bit. I'd like to know uh, a little bit more about your alpinism. So you uh, you grew up in a small mining town uh, in Wales, you say, and spent a lot of time in the uh, the Breck, Brecon Beacons. Uh, am I getting that right? Correct. Now, what makes those uh, great mountains to explore? I mean, they're in Wales. I've uh, poked around on the internet a little bit to, to check them out and make sure they're mountains and not hills. But, uh, you know, they, they look beautiful with a dusting of snow. I'll say that. They certainly do. And, well, you are right. Uh, Penavan, which is the, the highest peak in South Wales, is about 850 metres or so. Um, and then the tallest mountain in our 
uh, country is Snowden, uh, which is just over a thousand uh, meters, mm-hmm. um, which is part of the the Three Peaks, which is the, uh, the the highest mountains in all three countries in mainland United Kingdom. Um, right. Yeah, I grew, I grew up just south, so about 40 minutes south of the Brecon Beacons, which is a wonderful national park. Um, I would call them hills as well. Um, but we have a lot of natural beauty to our, our country. We're a small country, just under 6 million people, uh, or around 6 million people. Um, but a lot of unused land or a lot of open land. So I spent a lot of time, especially at university, going up into the Brecon Beacons and up into Snowdonia National Park, down to uh, Pembrokeshire Coastal Park, um, and exploring that kind of area, really. And uh, we, we didn't have anything in the in the winter. They become a bit more kind of rugged and, um, and more like mountains. Uh, but in the summer... Yeah, there's this certain parts to the the north north of Wales that is very kind of um, uh, alpine or e- even Himalayan. There's a, a long tradition of uh, Everest explorers coming to train in in Wales and up in Snowdonia. Uh, Hillary was uh, someone who who trained on the slopes of Snow uh, Snowdon um, on Ichliwith to get get the Hillary snap just right um before really? they went out to do themselves yeah so, there's, so it's fairly so fairly craggy yeah north northern wales uh is all volcanic it's all volcanic tough and is is very mm. craggy it's very rugged uh beautiful beautiful country uh countryside in that area and it's it's one of the most popular places in um in the uk for mountaineering um because there's so much to do there and there's a little pub called the Penagruid in in Snowdonia, and it still has um, equipment from from Mallory and the Sherpas and uh, from Tenzing and uh, from Hillary uh, still in there, like uh, gas cylinders and crampons and and those kind of stuff that they left in the in the pub, and you can go and have a beer or, or a hot chocolate and, and see it for yourself. That's very cool. Mm. So. Uh... You explored those areas, and you know what kind of uh, mountaineering were you were you into? Were you fast packing these? Uh, were you getting proper climbing trips in, or was it just you know long mountaineering days, uh, trying to bag as many summits as you can? Because I did the uh, Ramsey Round uh, a couple of years ago, so I'm familiar with the Three Peaks, the Three Peak Challenge, and um, they're difficult, undoubtedly. Ramsey Round was <laughs> was a very long day, plus a few hours, and uh, <laughs> I like to call it the worst weather that uh, I've ever willingly uh, been outside in. Uh, it was it was uh, miserable for about half of it, and I love uh, you know just thinking about this story. I was coming up the backside of Ben Nevis, so we started at the foot of Ben Nevis and we went, uh, I believe, it was anti-clockwise, and which was the original way that uh, Charlie did it, and. You know, so you are, by the time you're coming up the back of Ben Nevis, I'm going to say you're 90 kilometers into this. You've, you've climbed a million zillion feet. It's just like you're pretty white. <laughs> and uh, you know what, what it's like there. There's not a lot of footpaths, right? It's just all pretty wide open. So um, we're coming up the back of this uh, rubble field. I mean, it's not even scree. It's, it's boulders. And uh, the mist is in and it's thick. And I'd already lost a couple pacers uh in that section because you know in their words it was blowing a gale and uh the risk wasn't uh, worth it for them but you know when the television cameras are running and you've been without sleep for 24 plus hours it all seems like a good idea so we just soldiered on and up through the mist i'm convincing myself that i'm seeing like people beside me there's, there's shadows in the distance dark shadows and it's like, no, there couldn't be anybody else out here. This is horrific. Nobody else would be outside in such brutal, cold, windy, wet, rainy conditions. And sure enough, as I get to the top, it's like a proper summer day up there. You know, it's still miserable, but there had to be at least 20, 30 people on the summit. And, you know, we snap our quick summit photo, high fives all around, moving through the mist, bumping into more people and groups. And then we start descending. And there are people of all shapes and sizes and levels of fitness uh, making their way up. Oh, how close are we to the summit? And I'm thinking to myself, are you guys out of your mind? Don't you realize how bad the weather is? Go home. Go to the pub. 
it's just it's a different uh it's a different world out there but yeah the hills are a little bit more round and, and grassy but they're dangerous they're i i felt more exposed out there than any of my uh scrambling projects um and the fkt stuff i've done in the canadian rockies where you know you literally are on knife edge ridges with some pretty serious consequences if something breaks off or if you fall it's uh, it's not an easy playground it's not, and I'm sat here laughing to myself because that story could be a story from any of my friends uh, who are mountaineers in South Wales or spent time in Scotland, uh, in uh, up in the Cairngorms or down to, towards Glencoe or in Snowdonia or in the Lake District. It happens all across the UK. And genuinely, I, I tell the exact same story, but uh, from a Welsh side. You know, I... In, in winter, when uh, in the Brecon Beacons, the snow cover, you get, get a snow covered, you get a few ice falls, and there's a couple of little nice little gullies that you can do um, in winter. And you're there with your ice axes, kind of picking your way up the back of this, this mountain on the north face of Panavan, and you're kind of picking your way up. And you swing your ice axe up over the, the, the very top, uh, and it goes clink, and then you kind of pull yourself over. And genuinely, you just see all these people. Just looking at you, going, "What are you up to?" <laughs> and they're all there, just having a day out. You walk back down off the mountain. There's people there with sled with sledges and and the likes. And I don't know, man. Like the UK, just we have this tradition of of going outside in really weird conditions. And it's why people come from all over the world to train in Scotland because it's you know you you grow out in the if there's a, the weather comes in in the Alps, you just don't go out. If the weather comes in in Scotland, there's no question you're going out anyway. So I think people have this idea of uh, of traditional climbing in uh, in the UK, which there was a lovely piece um, by I think it was Hazel Findlay in in, uh, in Summit magazine a few years ago in the UK that was traditional traditional styles of climbing are both holding us back and but but that's in a good way you know that I spent a lot of my youth kind of uh, we have a lot of quarries because we're we're an old mining. Um, uh, community right. it, where I'm from, all across South Wales. So we have a lot what of. Were they, what were they mining? Is uh, anything from uh, lime, a lot of limestone and uh, sandstone quarries uh, down in, in South Wales. So they're looking for things like uh, copper, tin, um, mm. a lot of coal. Like at one point, uh, there was one of the towns in South Wales was the richest town in the world because of the amount of coal we put out and steel uh, as well. So we've got all these quarries that were, were just sat there and um people started bolting them up so a lot of my youth was sport climbing in um in south wales called Cragin uh in in south wales quarries and Cragin in in south wales is I remember the first route i did uh it kind of led it up and there's this really rusty bolt that was like a, the last bolt before you got to the anchor and you kind of clipped and went oh i don't think that looks solid <laughs> that's not a bomber bomber hold and then you realize that the anchor is just a tree, <laughs> this little small tree at the top of the, the top of the crag. And it happens time and time again. Like it really, it really kind of hardens you up in this little place called Tupentus. The last time I was there, um, my belay was belaying from under an umbrella because it was so, uh, the rain was coming down so hard. So it really does kind of, it makes it mentally more prepared for, for bigger things. And then, there's a lot of traditional climbing as well, so you know, setting your own uh, protection and whatnot in in South Wales. So I kind of worked my way at rock climbing to begin with, and then into mountaineering after that, and then into trail running after that as well, and, and new ways of accessing uh, those mountains. But what I always what I was trying to do is make sure that I'm proficient in those things before I I try and do them. So you know, with alpinism, for example, um, I always I'm very kind of risk aware rather than risk averse i uh, i was wish i was more kind of uh i would go and do things and then find out it was a bit more risky than i thought it was it kind of holds me back from a from a lot but my general idea for being in the mountains if 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 the the crap hits the fan if you can't get yourself off the mountain if you can't as a pay as a duo as a team can't get yourself off the mountain you have no right to be there in the first place so the reason that I've held off from doing bigger and bigger mountains because you know I've got my I, I'm a mountain leader now in the, in the UK. I need to do my winter mountaineering course. I'm off to do some ski touring in um, Scotland and the Alps uh, this winter. But I want to be proficient at all of that before I put myself in those situations. 
is it a, a possibly not a danger to myself but a danger to my my team as well um and scotland and, and wales are a great training ground for that um they throw just as your experience showed they throw a lot of stuff at you to contend with in in one or two days out you don't have to be there for long before the weather comes in yeah oh yeah it's uh both trips to scotland you know we've we've uh had weather uh challenges there uh you know what's interesting though is you mentioned hey if if i'm going to play in the mountains i need to know that I can get myself or that our team or duo or whatever can get ourselves out. If we go in, we got to be able to get out. What I've noticed in North America and uh, maybe not as much in Europe, although it definitely has happened, um, especially around Chamonix, is that there's been an overall increase in fitness that I attribute to you know ultra endurance running. So where mm-hmm. I uh, where I used to be in Canmore, Alberta, uh, the ultra Thing just caught on. It took overtook hiking. It overtook mountaineering. So everybody became an ultra endurance athlete, and even the uh, the mountaineers they started picking up the pace. And you know, you started getting speed mountaineering with um, you know Killian and Uli and uh, some of the other European athletes who kind of became stars through this. But what I'm getting to is that what I see in ultra, and I'm still seeing it now, is so many of these athletes mistake fitness for ability. And they can get themselves in, but they oftentimes can't get themselves out. Or, you know, there's some epic story by the time they come staggering out of the forest, uh, you know, a day and a half later. Yeah, I think you're right. And it definitely attributed to to wonderful, wonderful athletes like um, Kylian Jorni and uh, Uli Steck and, uh, and the likes, who just, in my mind, Olympians, if they, if they were an Olympic sport, they would be up the obviously, gold medalists the entire time. Um and you know, I, I when I go to the mountains, you know, me and my mate will say, you know, oh, what would what would Uli do? Like, would would they stop and turn around, or would he would he kind of go on or or whatnot? And we're always thinking about about that. He's kind of yeah. seen as the the you know the gold standard, and he certainly was. But um, I think you're right, and I don't I don't think it's it's definitely something to do to do with the new ultra uh, craze that, that's out there and. I've definitely fallen into that. I did a climbing accident about um, 12 months ago and haven't done a lot of running since because I, I did my ankle in. Um, but I've now got my, my first ultra uh, my first ultra back coming up next next April. And um, and I, I definitely see the improvements in my mountaineering when I train more for, for ultras. But I, I in no way does that take away from the fact that if I don't know how to set a, an anchor properly... Or if I get myself into a situation where I can't get myself back out of, if I kind of like climb down a certain section, I can't get back out of it. And it's seen as a, as an epic, like that. that's such a, 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 it's a term that's banded around the mountaineering community so much and seen as a good thing. And, you know, we've, we've all had epics in one way, shape or form. I told a story the other day, uh, just yesterday, actually, um, I was in a, a, a Q&A with Ben Fogel, who's a, a great adventurer uh, from the UK. And um, they said, like, oh, have you had any um, near-death experiences like uh, like Ben, who was just up on, on Everest and uh, he ran out of oxygen up there. But I said, yeah, there was a, this ultra I did a couple of years ago. I'd just been to the jungle for six weeks. I was emaciated. I came back. I had two weeks to train and get into this. It was one of the hardest kind of ultras in, in the UK, the the Beacons Ultra, which is 55 miles and um, 4,800 meters of ascent. And I wasn't prepared that I didn't do it properly. I thought I was hydrated and I wasn't. I was taking ibuprofen and um, they bundled me into the back of an ambulance and said, uh, you're lucky that you didn't have um, liver failure because you were you were pretty close. I had to be carried off the mountain. And yeah, that's a, an epic. Am I, do I tell it as a, a story that's cool? No, I, I'm embarrassed by it because... I should never put myself in that situation. Um, so I, I personally, I don't see epics as this kind of medal to, to badge of honor to wear. Um, personally, I, I, I'm embarrassed by them if I and I try to not get myself into them um, for sure. So I think you, I think you're right that the way that fitness is going, the ability to get in the mountains is not being met by proficiency and skill. Uh, I think we still have some ways to go. 
Yeah, well, I have to agree, and uh, hopefully the ankles uh, improved. And you know, I guess along the path uh, we learn through our mistakes, and as long as we can learn from them, that's uh, that's the best way forward. But uh, you know, Will Gad is a world famous ice climber. Uh, I mean, yeah. he is the ice climber globally. And, <laughs> he is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we were chatting with him uh, for our Forty Winters film a couple of winters ago, and. You know, he said uh, his best advice for us was bail early, bail often. And he said he's never had any unplanned bivvies out in the mountains. You know, things go wrong, yeah, but, um, you know, you haven't risked everything to uh, yeah. put yourself in that position where, I don't know, you get glory or I, I don't know what you'd be attaining. But, I mean, Will's got everything that any young adventurer athlete would ever aspire to you know he's a red bull athlete he was canada's first he he's internationally known he's a sought-after speaker he's still doing cool things in his early 50s and to never have had to uh do an unplanned uh bivy you know that's saying a lot in um, in terms of the big stuff that he's done so kind of take that with me and you know just to uh put a bow on this i want to start talking about your educational um work uh I was just watching a TED talk uh, that Alex Honnold had given about uh, his recent free soloing successes. And it was beautiful. It was when he climbed Half Dome, uh, which was, uh, God, four years ago, six years ago, eight years ago. It was a while back. And, you know, he was kind of embarrassed by it because he was just a young gunslinger at the time and and got all uh, pumped up for it. And he got two quarters of the way up and kind of got stymied by a few moves where he, he lost his confidence and, you know, he really had to work through it. And he made it to the summit, but he wasn't proud of his achievement. And he says, you know, it's a beautiful summer day. He comes over the summit uh, and it's just throngs of tourists every day. He says, nobody bats an eye. Here's a kid in shorts, no shirt, and uh, climbing shoes. Pops over, no rope, of course, and <laughs> no fanfare, no attention. He says he takes his shoes off for the down climb, and all of a sudden people start down walk. And people start, whoa, man, you're hiking without shoes. That's so hardcore. <laughs> you just free solo the half dome. And you know, I, was just, um, I, I laughed when he told that story. But anyways. Yeah, um, it's, a, and it's, a, right. it's a fantastic film as well. It's only just coming out here in the, in the, uh, in the UK. Um, but I know it's been out in the US for a while. I saw it at a premiere at Ken Lamont Festival uh, a week or two ago. Oh, it's a wonderful, great. wonderful film, which really kind of shows... Yeah, every single side uh, to Alex, including the the bit, the embarrassing bits, the the personal the personal side, and it's a really good look into what makes a person, what makes a uh, a gold medalist in in the mountains kind of thing. Your your Uli's, your Killians, your Alex's, for sure. Right. So, yeah, it shows that it's not black and white. That mountaineering isn't a uh, and climbing and, and whatnot. It isn't something you do or don't do. It's it's so many grays to it and he's such a we see these amazing things that he does it's nice to see the 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 person behind the posters right uh yeah he's a very inspiring person Uh, i haven't seen the film yet i'm dying to uh i just haven't been where the film has aired yet so it it'll happen soon i'm hoping but uh yeah so you're you're on a cruise ship right now you're you're there to lead some educational programming for the uh the vacationers basically on the cruise uh, and you've done this around the globe. You've been able to take science and build scientific literacy or STEM as we were talking about off air, uh, take it to a wider audience who might not necessarily be seeking out these opportunities on their own. So, you know, you've, you are the director uh, for the blue group. Um, you run Antares. I mean, tell me more about these. Tell me what you do and tell me, uh, some of the challenges about getting this message across. Uh, I mean, you talk about some heavy things like deforestation, climate change, uh, ocean health and wellness, which I presume is everything from plastics to overfishing. I mean, a lot of stuff that, you know, you're on a cruise, you're, you're all inclusive, and you're just there to have a good time. So, to me, there's yeah, some barriers a, that you're going to have to overcome. It's a funny one because I come on these cruises and people go, I thought you were going away to work. And I was like, mm, yeah, I am. It is work. <laughs> but, uh, I kind of came straight out of uni, um, having done astronomy and space science, and went straight into a science center, which you guys have bunches of in the in the states. Um, uh, I just went to the the Frost Science Museum down in Miami. It's a wonderful, wonderful science museum. Oh, if you cool. ever get to uh, to go, wonderful planetarium. I worked in their planetarium doing Star Talks 
um, and, and talking about the stars. And I did that for a long time. And then I talked, uh, went into the, to do public speaking in the theater, talking about everything from sports science right through to engineering science and, and whatnot. And then with, to, to a couple of other places, all kind of talking about science and music or gravitational wave theory, which is my kind of background, but that was for like 11 year olds. So gravitational wave theory for 11 year olds is kind of tough. Um, but all with the idea of making science a bit more accessible, a bit more fun, a bit more entertaining. And I realized that my passion wasn't in things like music. So I was doing the science of music, but it wasn't my passion. I, kids can mm-hmm. definitely tell when you're not talking about your passion. And I was like, so what is my passion? So I started a, a company with a friend of mine called Science Junkie. Um, and it was all about science for extreme sports. And then created Antirus from that. And Antirus is a, is a Welsh word. It means adventurous in Welsh. Okay. And so Antirus education is adventurous education uh, in one way, shape, or form. And the, when it started, we couldn't get any funding from from anywhere. It wasn't adventurous enough for outdoor companies, and it wasn't educational enough for uh, science companies. Uh, so I got a bank loan out. I bought a second-hand Citroen Blingo from a, a car dealership. I got four of my mates, and we drove uh, two and a half thousand miles each way down to Sicily, uh, which is wow. uh, has Mount Etna, which is the highest active volcano in Europe. And we went there for ten days, uh, drove four days each way to make sixty films about physics, chemistry, biology, um, meteorology, and did Skype classroom tours. Yeah, all filmed and edited whilst we were there. Big shout out to my colleague, Joby Newson, who um, we would stay up till 3 a.m. each night and wake up at 7 a.m. just editing and doing social media and the likes. It was the first one we'd wow. ever done and we didn't really know. We had this idea of like doing everything live. We don't do it like that anymore because it's stupid. <laughs> so <laughs> we learned quite quickly. But man, we, yeah, we pumped out a lot, of, yourself, a lot right? of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then, so we made all these these. Uh, videos all on a, a volcano and I remember we we had we were doing Skype classroom calls from the volcano we were doing one with a, a school in Nebraska and we, we were doing a Skype classroom call and the volcano started going off behind us and the kids were kind of shouting that the volcano was going off and, and we were like where's my camera I need to take a picture of this uh, <laughs> but there was it, we had like 17 letters uh, delivered to us afterwards that all um so much like thank yous for the, for that experience and and whatnot and now we've got t-shirts made up with uh, one of the one of the kids called Tibbs uh, who was um, who wrote a wonderful letter and signed it sincerely Tibbs we got that on t-shirts now and we we really kind of felt that kind of adventurous education adventurous science adventure science uh, is a great way of connecting with the public about our natural world so we've done a bunch of expeditions since then expeditions in the looser sense because I was talking to someone about this yesterday about all the stuff all the ones that we go on all the trips we go on can't be proper expeditions in the normal sense of the word because we have to have mobile signal we have to have access to uh to energy to charge cameras and laptops to do skype classroom calls to to develop resources to look things up to write scripts and and whatnot so our trips tend to be to places like iceland and the alps where you have you it's, it's a certain amount of uh, luxury with the expeditions themselves. It, it fairly tough. Like we, we, we put long hours in, but it's our number one thing the entire time is education. We're not there to be the first to do anything. We're not there to to kill ourselves doing anything. Uh, we're just there to educate the next generation of scientists, uh, technologists, engineers, and mathematicians. So, and serious now, really, we, we're trying to kind of branch out into as many kind of fields as we can to get that message across. So the cruise ship part of it, Celebrity came to me a couple of years ago um, to talk about the, the kids stuff for the Camp at Sea program. And it for me, it was like an untapped audience that wouldn't see science or adventure without us being on board the ships. So we developed a whole kind of program called the Antirus Explorer Academy, which is, uh, you know, we, we talk to the kids like young, young explorers. And I tell you, man, they've been to places around the world that... You know, half of my friends haven't. New Caledonia, swimming with the Nautilus, up into Alaska, seeing brown bears, down in South America, into the jungles, along the Chilean fjords, up into Norway. You know, they've seen some places, man. And, you know, if you can connect the science and the, the geology and, 
you know, all the rest with the places that they go to, it's going to change their lives. And um, for me, it's that untapped audience that they're not expecting to see the science and, and get that information. And when they do, you know, I think they really enjoy it. So it's been a good partnership for us for the last couple of years. Uh, more luxurious than I'm normally used to, um, but a good one nonetheless. Well, that's it's really interesting. I like how uh, you know you went from just the idea of getting some educational programming going, uh, working it into your passion, and then the thing to do. It's it's challenging to raise funds um, to go do these things. So you use the money to buy a car, and then you guys just hit the road and did it all uh, all by the seat of your pants. Man, it was like driving sixteen hours a day. And for some reason, it didn't occur to me to put someone else on the insurance. So I did 16 hours a day for four days each way. It was five of us in the car and all our equipment. We took a snowboard and a mountain bike and, and all the rest of it. It was a real learning experience for us. But it set us up to to know what we wanted to do. We always put education at the, the forefront of any trip that we go on. Um, and it was a really good like benchmark for the rest of everything we do at Antirus, really. Mm-hmm. Well, so how many, uh, how many of our... Uh... How many partners do you have, and uh, is it just you on the ships these days, or do you have uh, Antares people uh, kind of uh, covering off all the, the seven seas? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a weird one, because so Antares is, is his own company now. It's a, a limited company in the UK, but I also have um, still have my own company as a, a sole trader in you know photography and filmmaking and public speaking and uh, hosting and, and whatnot. Um, and it's just me at, at Antares, and then We've got people that have been with us from the start um, as uh, as camera people and as presenters and scientists and, and whatnot. Um, always come on as kind of subcontractors. So uh, we we always work with the same people because the, the little team at Antirus, um, we've really developed good relationships over the last uh, few years. And we do put speakers on to uh, other cruise ships. We kind of uh, work with other companies to kind of develop um, new productions because um, we do filmmaking now as well uh, at Antirus. Um, we've got a little Antirus Media Collective and we do graphic design and filmmaking and whatnot. And that kind of really came out of the things we were doing for ourselves. So we've got a, a great uh, little team that does lots of stuff. People come to us and say about the the things that we do and they say, oh, you know, you must have a massive team. Like, no, it's a fairly small team. It's just we work really, really hard uh, on the things that we do. So, like, all props to the the, the team that I've worked with in Antirus over, over the last couple of years. But we're purposefully small, uh, I feel. I've always felt that in business that I've never wanted to be a business person. I find myself falling into that more and more over the, 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 the as the years go by. Um, sure. And I feel myself wanting to branch out more and more into, into different things. I never wanted to manage people. Um, and I found I think we found the the right balance where we kind of when I've got a great project to work on, you know I've got the team to go to because they're the best team that I have that I've seen for that work with us, um, and we'll just subcontract uh, to all of them. Um, but what I'm finding more and more is that you know, we're taking on these big projects that needs kind of more kind of contracts and and that kind of stuff, and I I end up doing more and more of the business side of it. Um, but I love working with people. It's it's one of those things where I I I don't want to be known for who I am. I don't want to be known for you know Hugh James does does these things. I want the work to speak to it for itself. And on Antirus on our website, you know we've got over fifty hours of uh, lesson plans and resources. We've got bunches of um, video content to download and experiments and um, uh, different resources to to have there. And I really do feel that the work speaks for itself. And yeah, that's what I've always wanted. And to do that by myself wouldn't be possible. So having that team to do it with is is just amazing. Yeah, I mean, having having the right team and a supportive team with a shared vision is uh, is critical from everything, uh, from a climbing expedition to, um, you know, uh, overland expedition uh, where you're searching for archaeological sites like we commonly do to you know building yeah. uh, educational models and, and multimedia presentations i mean it's and it's i feel like it's the same thing own. like whether whether you're looking for an expedition team or you're looking for a, a team to work with it's the same thing you have to have the same 
goal in mind for the you know everyone has to be on the same page and where you're going and and what you're doing um everyone has to get along um and everyone has to complement each other with their skills so whether it's expedition planning or business planning i feel like it's it's a little bit similar when you put in a team together mm-hmm. yeah well very well put so uh just a couple more questions for you but uh what's what's next for you when uh you get back to dry land for more than uh, a quick shore leave next on the cards is end of january i'm doing uh mount Tubkal in morocco it's uh in the atlas mountains in the high atlas uh, it's the highest point in north africa um about four Very and a half cool. thousand meters so just going up there to to do that which my buddy that i would spent a long time with in the jungle is putting a trip together and i was like I quite fancy going on that one, so we'll go and do that. And then I'm heading out to the Alps in uh, end of February and then up to Scotland for some ski touring um, to kind of develop my skiing and ski touring skills um, because later on in the year, I've got a new application going in with uh, National Geographic. About um, over the next three years, what we're trying to do is put a an Earth Studies curriculum together for schools across the world, um, which looks at... Uh, mountains, oceans, and jungles, uh, and we're putting a a schools curriculum together. So we go into to three different locations over the next three years um, to create the resources, the videos, the archive footage, the lesson plans to go with this Earth Studies curriculum. Um, so we can deliver it to schools, and we're going to be lobbying the Department for Education in the UK to put it into the curriculum to learn more about the Earth because they don't do it that much in the UK. I'm not sure what it's like in the US, but like really kind of studying and understanding how the earth works isn't something that, that happens. So if we can create all the resources that they need, all the videos that they'll need, the lesson plans, it's going to be easier easier for us to lobby um, Department for Education. So the idea is then we'll go onto the Vatican, which is, the, yeah, it's the, it's the largest ice cap in Europe, uh, up in Iceland. It's about a, a 10 day crossing on, on skis. Oh, Big perfect. And cold. Yeah. Yeah, it gets that like minus seventy five on top and the likes. And we've been—I've been around there uh, a lot, but not done a proper crossing of it. But the idea is that we'll we'll do Skype classroom calls uh, from up there using uh, sat phones and whatnot. We'll and it's again, it's all education based. So we'll spend the time to make the videos. We'll spend the time to work with scientists there uh, on the actual climate studies that they're doing. Things like do, do volcanoes uh, help or hinder uh, uh, in climate change and whatnot. Sure. So that'll be the the, the first in the uh, in the line of three expeditions that we do then, which will um, be case studies for this new Earth Studies curriculum that we, we're trying to put together. So my skiing skills got to be on point, uh, my ski touring skills, so I'm going to go and do some training up in Scotland uh, for that. Definitely. Well, Hugh, it's been uh, been a real pleasure learning about uh, learning a little bit more about your background and uh, what you do. It's nice to hear what you've got planned. That sounds uh, very ambitious, but... Uh, definitely uh, beneficial i'd love to see uh you know my young son leo have uh, exposure to that as as he moves through the um the school system in either canada or the us depending on uh you know where he wants <laughs> to go to school but um hey i always ask uh my guests what your uh expedition or life mantra is if you've got one so i'd love to to hear yours yes yeah, i've been slowly thinking about it through this and it's certain points where I've gone oh that could be my mantra that could be my mantra and I've got you know so many of them but definitely my my mountain mantra is is don't go to places that you can't get yourself out from we talked about that a little bit but my life mantra really is kind of be kind and be useful like I constantly think about how I'm of use to humankind and how I can be of more use to, to humankind well and it doesn't need to be anything you don't have to be creating graphene or you know winning the next Nobel Prize but being of some use I think is is important um, and generally being a, a nice person which is you know you've got to work at that it's not it doesn't come easy to to everyone um, and I try my best um, but I think the way that I can be useful is by by inspiring the younger generation to come through and be more scientifically literate uh, and think about their actions when you know they interact with with the earth i come from a i 
on the ship I do talks about cl- climate change and as an astronomer I think about you know the large climate change cycles so the eccentricity of Earth's orbit, the obliquity, the tilt of the, the Earth towards the Sun, all have massive implications on. So so when I talk about climate change, I'm really kind of talking about the big stuff. But then, you know, humans really are kind of changing how uh, we, how the, those cycles go. So humans are having an, uh, an impact. And everywhere we go yeah, as definitely. adventurers and as tourists, as travelers, and I really believe that Travel opens your mind to other cultures. I, I feel it's really, really important. But if we can teach the younger generation, you know, to be aware of how they're having an impact uh, on the earth, then that's, I think, my goal. That's my mantra in life is everything I do has to be kind of going towards that larger goal of how am I being useful? How am I impact? How am I teaching the next generation how they're impacting uh, the planet? So that's what I always try and try and do on all of my expeditions, on all of my um, all of my trips, really, is to to be useful. Well, I like that, and it's funny how once you're pursuing your passion and you're making a living, uh, you know, practicing uh, what you preach like that, how it's a heck of a lot easier to be useful to people because mm-hmm. typically when you're passionate about something and you know, you get to do it day in, day out, and you take pleasure in what you do. One, it doesn't feel like work. Two, you're typically working for yourself or really like-minded people who share a similar vision, so you don't have any uh, of those normal frictions there. But three, you know, you're, you're just putting passion and happiness out into the world, which, you know, automatically just makes it a better place. It makes people around you feel better. And, you know, if you project it, it goes far. So that's very sure. cool. Well, I, I like that one, Hugh. So thank you very much for uh, joining me today. Uh, I really appreciate you taking time on the cruise ship, uh, locking the, the cabin door. Uh, <laughs> from, thank you for uh, having me. It's been really good. Educators, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I'm going to track what you do, and I don't know. I think we've got some synergies. We'll, we'll have to see if we can connect for something down the road. Uh, but anyways, uh, all the best and uh, good luck with uh, with your ski training and uh, your, your crossing of the Vatnyoko Glacier. That's going to be pretty incredible. Hopefully not epic, but definitely incredible. Sure. Thanks for having me, Simon. I really appreciate it. Keep up the great yeah, work. My pleasure. Oh, yeah, you too. You too. Well, everybody, that's it for today. Um, really stoked about this podcast. Uh, what a fun guest and uh, interesting perspective on life. Uh, if you want to uh, learn more about Hugh, you can check him out online at hugegames.com. Uh, you can check his entire uh, organization out, or you can find him on Instagram at Hugh M. James. And, uh, you know, maybe you'll see him on a cruise ship or an uh, educational seminar near you someday. Um, and if you have a need for it, he definitely sounds like the guy for you. So, if you'd like to learn more about Adventure Science, you can visit us online at www.adventurescience.com. You can find us in the social media realm at adventure underscore sci for Instagram and Twitter, or you can find us on Facebook at Adventure Science. And Adventure Science wishes to thank its sponsors for making this possible. Merrill, Farm to Feet, Stoke Dokes, Suto, Canada Satellite, and Earthcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.